The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly Cash Like More Hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Well, Hannah, we're here. We're without Stuart and Paul. This is the Curbsiders. We're going to be talking about SGLT2 inhibitors tonight. Thank you so much for coming back. How, how have you been? Oh, I am doing great. I have my last lecture of med school tomorrow. And tonight I got to learn so much about SGLT2 inhibitors. They are the team to beat for NF Madness. I am convinced. Okay. Tell the tell them, since Paul's not here, you get to do this. What What is it that we do on the show? Just in case some of these people have never heard it before. Well, Matt, we are the internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And tonight we have a fantastic conversation with our three guests. So our first guest is Dr. Harish Sitapathy, who is a third year nephrology fellow at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston and an aspiring clinician educator. He's an editorial intern with the American Journal of Kidney Disease and is very involved in a variety of activities related to the journal. His most cherished activity of those is being the author of the SGLT2 inhibitor region in this year's Neph Madness. And our next guest is a returning guest, Dr. Matt Sparks. He is an assistant professor of medicine at Duke University. He's an associate program director for their nephrology fellowship and also the director of medical student research in the Department of Medicine. He tweets at nephro underscore sparks, and he is the co-creator of Neph Madness plus a program director in the Nephrology Social Media Collective Internship. And then, of course, you all know Joel Toff is our Cashlack Chief of Nephrology. He is best known as his much cooler uh, and more intelligent online alter ego, at kidney underscore boy. He is a clinical nephrologist at St. John's Ascension in Detroit and the co-creator of Neff Journal Club, Neff Madness, and the Freely Filtered Podcast. And he's a recipient of the Robert Narens Award from the ASN. So without further ado, let's get to it. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us. Harish, we'll start with you. Can you give the audience, uh, tell them a little bit about yourself, maybe something you do outside of medicine? Let's see, Matt. I think you already gave uh, me a good brief description. So I'm going to go ahead and tell the audience two things that I think are vitally important to today's discussion. Uh, One, I love mangoes. And two, I've never tasted coffee in my life. (laughs) Oh, my God. What? This is going to be good. He comes very well prepared. Uh, I can tell. (laughs) That's a great answer. Uh, You might want to try coffee. It's delicious. It's not addictive at all. Uh, I don't believe and Michael you. Pollan, Michael Pollan just put out an audio book about uh, being addicted to coffee. It's it's, it's all fake news. <laughs> As Joel and I sip our coffees in disdain <laughs> at nine o'clock at night. <laughs> okay, seven thirty here. <laughs> well, let's let's spend most of the time tonight talking about the main topic. Hannah, can you tell us about a case from Cashlack Memorial? Absolutely. So Mr. Creed Entz is a 57-year-old man with a history of type 2 diabetes, an A1C of 7.9, CKD2 with a GFR of 73. He's on lisinopril 40 milligrams daily, and he presents to your office for routine follow-up of CKD. He mentions that he saw an ad recently for empagliflozin that suggested he ask his doctor about it. He's not one to ignore directions, so here he is. Uh, Harish, can you explain to us what are SGLT2 inhibitors? Why are people excited about them? 
Thanks, Hannah. I want to start off by telling our listeners what SGLT stands for. They are sodium glucose co-transporters. They sort of exist all over the body, the heart, the liver, the brain, thyroid, even the prostate. The clinical relevance, of course, of all but SGLT1 and 2 are unclear. The history of SGLT2 inhibitors, I, I find it fascinating. I think we've seen throughout history that more often than not, we stumble upon discovery. It's not always straightforward. And as is the case with, with SGLT2 inhibitors too. You know, it was first um, isolated in 1835. French chemists got it from ap- the bark of apple trees. And they thought it was like, you know, another drug to treat infectious diseases because they had found quinine from cinchona bark and they used it to treat malaria. Eventually, they found that fluorescent-induced diabetes-like symptoms like glucosuria, uh, polyuria, and weight loss. So it was an important compound in renal physiology, and that's what people have been using it for a lot of years. It was the fluorescent-induced diabetic animal model. Eventually, in the 70s, they figured out that the target for fluorescein was a receptor in the proximal tubule and that it could be used for diabetes. Uh, but unfortunately, fluorescein itself leads to a lot of GI side effects because it acts on SGLT1 in the intestines. I just want to make sure you're clear. That's not a side effect. That is actually an effect. <laughs> I mean, it hits. Uh, those are receptors in the gut and it hits them. And that's what I always like to tell people. It's like, these are not side effects. These are effects. And so that just increases the glucose in the stool. And so that causes the diarrhea. It's an osmotic diarrhea from... Too much glucose. Well, we don't really know that uh, know enough about that. It just stimulates the receptors, and somehow that leads to intolerance. It um, stimulates or blocks it, receptors. It blocks the receptors, and uh, the you know, but you know, we'll talk about the kidneys where you know both SGLT one and two receptors exist, but SGLT two receptors where most of the action happens. More than ninety percent of glucose. And another another thing, just to clear up, it's it's not a receptor. It's a it's a co-transporter. And it's inhibited by this molecule. And so, the, and is like all other diuretics, it has to be uh, filtered for it to become active? Is it filtered at the glomerulus or secreted? I'm pretty sure it's filtered through the glomerulus, though I'm not 100% sure about that. So why, why have these drugs become so popular recently? Like, what's, what's all the fuss about? Why are people so, like, wildly excited about them all of a sudden? Matt, that's a great question. I think initially when the trials were done, I think the focus was all on treating diabetes and how to lower the glucose because, you know, these drugs uh, cause you to lose glucose in the urine. So perhaps they'll improve your A1C and that was the only thought process behind them. But once the trial data started coming out and these trials were huge trials where more than 10,000, 15,000 patients were treated, it was very obvious that these drugs had significant benefit outside of just lowering glucose, such as effects on cardiovascular mortality, cardiovascular death. Um, They did reduce blood pressure and A1Cs, but then this benefit really stood out. And that's when people started thinking that perhaps, you know, these drugs could act on, uh, act to prevent uh, more serious Uh, things like mortality and cardiovascular death. Um, It also helped with renal endpoints such as prevention of dialysis or or lowering your GFR slope so that you don't get to uh, the point of dialysis quickly enough. Um, So I think they had a lot of benefit then. And then that's why, you know, a lot of trials panned out from that point onwards with kidney-specific endpoints, heart-specific endpoints, and things like that. So I think uh, the two diseases that it spanned out on were one was CKD and the other was heart failure. And that's why, you know, last year we had the Credence study, which I think was one of the most important studies in kidney medicine. Right. So just a a little bit of background there. There was a drug called rosy glitazone, which is one of the glitazones. And this drug... Uh, 
in an in a, it, after being approved years after being approved uh, was shown in a uh, an analysis by Steve Nissen to increase uh, cardiac mortality and this was shocking right this is a drug that was effective at lowering the A1C but increasing worsening cardiac outcomes and the FDA said whoa we need to rethink how we approve diabetic drugs in the past it just they just had to be shown to lower A1C and they said that's not going to be good enough anymore. Need to, need to lower A1C, but you also need to then do a larger outcomes-driven cardiovascular safety trial. And it was this safety trial with these uh, SGLT2 inhibitors where we got the surprising result that not only were they at, they were just looking for safety, just to be equivalent for cardiovascular mortality, and they were actually improving it. And so, you know, again, you know, echoing what Harish said, we, we weren't expecting this finding. We were, they were just trying to show that they were as safe, and they went way beyond that. All right. So a series of happy accidents that have kind of brought these amazing drugs to the forefront. Well, I think it, I think it emphasizes that if you don't look for it, just knowing the mechanism might not teach you what, uh, what kind of benefits these drugs have. You have to look for the, the, the hard outcomes. The, the other thing that I, I can't say enough on this show is that the, there, we, we did a show, um, uh, it was it was in the it was before episode 100. I think it was 95 or 96 about the diabetes drugs when the ACP put out their diabetes guidelines recommending most patients can do just fine with an A1C between seven and eight percent because they had all these trials in the like between the late 90s or the 90s and the 2000 early 2000s where they tried with the older agents to lower the glucose really aggressively and just making the numbers look pretty did not prevent these big cardiovascular and renal endpoints. And what's so incredible about these SGLT2 inhibitors is that even though the A1C was a very modest difference between the treatment and the placebo group, they did see in, in even a short time, like three to five years in some cases, or two and a half to five years, they did see these endpoints, these real hard endpoints that we care about versus the insulin, sulfonylurea trials. They, they put them out to five years, 10 years, and they just couldn't find these endpoints. Yeah. One of the most remarkable things about these, about uh, Canvas and Empagliflozin, which were the two, and Empagreg, which were the two cardiovascular outcomes, is how quickly the Kaplan-Meier curves separate. It's like you swallow one of these pills, by the time you're in the parking lot, it's already improved your mortality. It's unbelievable how fast these things happen. And we just don't see that with like hypertension trials or cholesterol trials. They have this long runway before you start to build up an effect. The fact that these things happen so fast is, is really remarkable. Right, so we have these kind of incredible outcomes, and we're now working backwards a little bit on the mechanism, it sounds like. Harish, can you explain this concept of tubuloglomerular feedback as the mechanism for SGLT2 benefit? Yeah, absolutely. I think we've all heard that the first step in diabetic kidney disease is hyperfiltration. Um, and how this happens, I think, is fascinating. First, what happens is there's persistent hyperglycemia, and this upregulates glucose reabsorption in the proximal tubule. Along with glucose, sodium is also reabsorbed, which means that as the tubular flow progresses to the macula densa, there's less sodium and chloride delivery to the macula densa. The macula densa is not very smart, so this it mistakes this for reduced renal perfusion, and then signals uh, to the afferent arteriole that, hey, you need to be increasing blood flow. So there's, re there's reduced tone in the afferent arteriole, which means that there is um, increased blood flow into the glomerulus. So there's increased intraglomerular pressure. This hyperfiltration over time, as time goes on, and there's a lot of intraglomerular pressure, this leads to more and more fibrosis and uh, loss of nephrons. 
So the opposite thing happens when you put somebody on an SGLT2 inhibitor. It reduces uh, glucose reabsorption as a result of which the sodium that goes along with it comes to the macular densa. Now the macular densa thinks that there's, oh, there's a lot of blood flow, so I need to do the opposite. So it causes afferent arterial vasoconstriction and reduces intraglomerular pressure. And this ends up protecting the kidneys. I think this is fascinating in that when you look at the curve for the GFR with these drugs, it happens immediately. You see an acute decline in EGFR, but then the slope stabilizes and magically over time, this leads to more and more nephron preservation and the GFR slope is much better than if you're not on the drug. So the initial GFR does the initial drop in GFR doesn't correspond to loss of nephrons. It just it's just the the vasoconstriction potentially. That's right. It's all human. Can I just make a comment? I mean, that's just absolutely beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. I mean that it's just the physiology of how that works. If you go back to the region, have you ever gone to Costco and and buy those you know big uh, water balloon things where you can make like a bunch at the same time? Oh, yeah. And so that is the mascot for this team. And uh, <laughs> okay. if you can imagine, that's like the afferent, afferent arterial. I mean, all these, as every time I, I do those, it looks, it reminds me of all the glomeruli inside the kidney. And what happens when you get too much pressure in there? The blues. They pop, exactly. <laughs> and that's loss, real loss of nephron. So we got to do what we can. To maintain the balance. And now one thing it's not like the real kidney is you only have an afferent arterial. You will not have an efferent arterial at all. Or else you'll be standing there forever and they'll never blow up. One of the things that I think is important to understand about TG feedback, tubular glomerular feedback, is it's not something that's like bolted onto the kidney. Like if you think, you know, human plasma volume is three liters and a normal GFR is 100 cc's a minute. That means in 30 minutes, you filter all the plasma. So the kidney needs to always protect itself, ever, always, from ever having a situation where you have filtration without reabsorption. Because if you have filtration without reabsorption, you're dead in 30 minutes. And so this TG feedback is not something that's bolted on at the end. It's absolutely inherent. It's the only way possible that you could have such a high GFR for the plasma volume. And so this is just a, you know, a, an incredibly important central functional part about how you regulate how fast uh, that you have glomerular filtration. So how does all of this work out with kind of the other classic teaching about diabetic kidney disease and tubular glomerular feedback, which is to start an ACE inhibitor? How does, how does this work with the fact that Mr. Ance is already on lisinopril? I think as Matt said, I think it works out beautifully. I think what ACE inhibitors do, uh, they produce efferent uh, vasodilation, you know, RAS blockade, both ACE inhibitors and ARB, uh, agents do that. And this combines with the efferent vasoconstriction to really reduce intraglomerular pressure. And it should be noted that in the early trials, almost 80% of the patients were on ACE inhibitors or ARB agents. And in Credence, all of these patients were on RAS blockade. So this agent was the SGLT2 inhibitors were added on top of RAS blockade and not independently. So the benefit that they provide is on top of what the benefit is already afforded by ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers. So you're saying with when they're on RAS blockade, that's that's dilating the efferent, like the outflow from the glomerulus, and then the SGLT2 is causing vasoconstriction of the inflow. So those two things in common. Uh, those two things in combination lower the the glomerular pressure. 
yeah, you block the entry point and you let the outlet go. So the glomerulus is sort of feeling sort of free. You know, it doesn't have to manage uh, that much blood flow. So I think it feels a little healthier. And from from Matt's uh, uh, analogy, you'd never fill that balloon. The balloon is going to be, you'll never, it'll never pop. It'll, it'll, <laughs> it'll never pop. It's, uh, but, okay, so in Harish, your write-up suggests that maybe these aren't, this isn't the only mechanism about why these drugs. This is when it gets have, into fantasy land. Have a benefit. Go, <laughs> I'm going into Matt, my corner now. Team other mechanisms. <laughs> oh, other, other. Yeah, other Matt doesn't really believe this, but what do some people believe? What are some of the other proposed mechanisms by why these drugs have such a myriad of effects and benefit? Matt, I think it's it's quite obvious when you add RAS blockade, how it acts and what pathway it acts through. Whereas if you add SGLT2 inhibitors, you know that you lose glucose, you sure you reduce your blood pressure a little bit, you lose some weight because of you lose calories, but you really don't know or you cannot pin everything on just the TG feedback. And I think there's been other mechanisms and these papers are coming out by the day um, that prove that SGLT2 inhibitors have a lot of other effects other than just TG feedback. And I think two of them, I'm going to talk about two of them today. I think the first one is when you have increased intracellular glucose concentrations, as you see in diabetes, this induces a lot of inflammatory cytokines and fibrotic mediators. And you know, all those reactive oxygen species, the bad ones uh, that you get, this can all lead to long-term nephron loss and more and more fibrosis. The SGLT2 inhibitors, by just by reducing the intracellular glucose concentrations in the tubules, can reverse this or at least stop this. Um, the other thing that they also do is through VEGF expression, they are regulated and upregulating VEGF expression also reduces fibrosis. And this is also beneficial in the heart because it's, it works in a similar way by reducing inflammation and fibrosis in the heart. The second thing that it does is it alters energy consumption. Now, if you're not a diabetic um, and you have a meal, you know that you will utilize glucose as your main substrate. And if you are on call and you don't eat, then you know that after a while, you will utilize fat through fatty acid oxidation. But the thing is, if you utilize glucose, it is more energy efficient. You have less oxygen consumption to produce a molecule of ATP than you would if you utilize fat. So in diabetes, when you have insulin resistance um, and your cells are unable to utilize glucose, your cells switch to fatty acids, which are not that energy efficient. And you have to consume a lot of energy to actually uh, keep things going. Um, so SGLT2 inhibitors, what they do is they decrease glucose levels. So you have increased insulin sensitivity. So your body is able to utilize the glucose it has a lot better than it would. Also, the other thing they do is they increase ketogenesis in the liver, all those fatty acids that come in, they change it into ketones um, by increasing their production in the liver. And, you know, ketones are a bad word. Every time we think about ketones, we think about DKA and especially, but they play such an important role, especially in periods of starvation. You know, that's what keeps our brains going after a long period of call. And so obviously... Uh, I think it's 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 uh, kind of important that when you have a much more energy efficient fuel like the ketones instead of the fatty acids, then you're saving energy. You know, after the heart, the kidneys are the most energy consuming organ. They have a lot of Na plus K plus ATPase, which requires a lot of energy. They sort of need 25% of the cardiac output. But having ketones as one of the substrates that the cells can use really helps them save energy. So I think these are the two main mechanisms, I think, by which uh, they've been shown to perhaps um, have more of a benefit on renal endpoints. What, what's the story with this, uh, the hydrogen exchange 
this is a cardiac mechanism. Is that right? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, there's this uh, sodium hydrogen antiporter in the heart. And SGLT2 inhibitors have been shown to um, block this antiporter. Remember, there's no SGLT2 uh, co-transporters in the heart, at least not SGLT2 co-transporters, but they have somehow been shown to block this sodium hydrogen antiporter and decrease the intracellular levels of sodium and calcium. And when that happens, it actually reduces inflammation and prothrombosis in the heart. We don't really know how that happens, but it has something to do with the reduced amounts of sodium and calcium inside the myocytes. Yeah, and the other thing, the, uh, the other weakness I see in the TG feedback argument is it really depends on this um, afferent vasoconstriction for causing all the benefits. But if that was the case, we would love NSAIDs, right? NSAIDs do the same thing, and all the nephrologists would be saying, "Yeah, make sure you take ibuprofen every day, three times a day, to preserve kidney function." Right? It sounds absurd, but effectively, that's what we're doing with these SGLT2 inhibitors. I completely agree. I think if you just have TG feedback, I just don't see how it can be that useful in heart failure. And, you know, there could be some osmotic diuresis, we've proven that, and there could be some natriuresis, but it just doesn't have the same amount of, uh, it shouldn't have the same amount of benefit if it was just TG feedback. Shouldn't, couldn't, maybe. I still have not (laughs) seen any evidence provided to me. (laughs) I guess the studies are forthcoming, man. Okay, I'll wait for those to come. I mean, what <laughs> are the, the original studies at looking at glomerular filtration were done with SGLT2 and SGLT1 inhibitors on Mount Desert Island. Right, Joel? Is it a mountain or is it a desert or is it an island? Got to pick it, okay? You can't be all three. <laughs> it's okay. Just remember those balloons at Costco. So... We have our patient, Mr. Creed Entz. Uh, just to remind people, he has diabetes. He's fifty-seven, and he's he's asking us about potent, about going on an SGLT two inhi- inhibitor. Harish, what what adverse effects do we have to tell him about, and what is the proposed mechanism for some of these effects? If you want to go through them, sure, Matt. I think when we talk about the mechanisms, we spoke about a couple of things. One, there's an acute decrease in GFR after initiation. A lot of people thought that perhaps these drugs could cause AKI because they induce diuresis and perhaps the patient would be volume depleted. But this has not borne out in subsequent studies. And when they looked at meta-analyses of all the patients treated with these drugs, they actually found a decrease in AKI events with these drugs. So I think that is kind of reassuring. Um, the two other things, one, we also mentioned that um, these drugs increase ketogenesis, so they cause an increase in ketones. While it's very, very rare, I think there was only around 15 events in a cohort of greater than 15,000 patients, there was this increased risk of euglycemic DKA, and you would see case reports here and there with it, because these drugs cause loss of glucose. You see normal glucose levels, but they increase ketones. But in states of extreme insulin resistance, this, this can translate to DKA. Uh, the other two things that it causes, one is amputation and the other is um, a fracture risk. These two were in the initial canvas trials with canagliflozin. They haven't really borne out with the other drugs and in subsequent studies, including Credence, there was not an increased risk of amputation or fractures with these drugs. But it should be noted that in Credence, they checked everybody's feet very regularly. And perhaps, you know, that helped just looking at their feet and making sure that there was no wounds or taking care of those wounds, a 
perhaps help those patients avoid amputations. Um, and of course, when you lose a lot of glucose in the urine, you increase your risk of urinary tract infections. But most of the risk seems to be around genital infections with uh, uh, genital fungal infections. Um, so when these patients complain of uh, such symptoms such as dysuria, you have to take a closer look at the urine and make sure that uh, you prescribe them um, a course of antifungals if they need it. I was trying to look this up because I know this is for for our listeners who are going to be prescribing these drugs. This this is going to be one of the big sticking points, like just getting the patient through a lot of the stuff that you see out there in the news. The other thing, Fournier's gangrene or necrotizing fasciitis of of the you know the nether regions is is another thing. There was a paper in Annals in 2019 that looked at this, and that between 2000. Uh, 13 and 2019, the period they looked at, there was 55 cases reported. And it, they looked at like a bunch of similar drugs that were reported to the FDA between like the late 80s or the, the 1984 and January 2019. And there was only 19 cases of Fournier's gangrene reported during that time. So what is that? Like a 30, so, 30 some year period versus a six-year period, and there was more cases in the six-year period with the SGLT2 inhibitors. So they kind of just recommend vigilance at this point. Like it's, it doesn't prove causation. And I think it's kind of the same thing with the the diabetic foot stuff that you were talking about, where patients just need to be aware of that. And some articles I've read say those patients, like if patients have really bad peripheral uh, arterial disease or if they have foot wounds, you might just not want to put them on these drugs at all. Yeah, I, I, I think you need to be careful with the, the Canvas data was concerning because even though the risk was much higher with people with peripheral vascular disease, the relative risk, which was about two, was the same if they had peripheral vascular disease or they didn't, right? Like, don't you know, again, I was very reassured that... Um, that credence didn't have any signal at all for amputations, but you know, and but I th- you know I think you got to look at what exactly what Harish was saying is that they took steps to avoid that. They did foot inspections in every visit, and I think that's an important an important fa- factor. And I think that data actually came out um, after they had the protocol for credence, and they wrote that in, bolted it on, yeah, yeah. add that on. But you know, I think I've never heard of anyone give a good explanation for why these drugs would cause that as a an effect. So um, I, I'm still, you know, a little bit skeptical yeah. about whether or not that's a real effect of the drugs or just was because uh, these are still very low events. It's a very rare occurrence, right. and and then also these are studies that are much larger than we're used to uh, seeing. So that maybe uncovered a few things that might may or may or might not be true yeah it's like one of those things like in order to prove causation there has to be a a plausible mechanism proposed right like isn't that one of the joel do you have any idea harish no i think i think there's going to be a few studies on bone health um and i'm sure they're going to look at sglt2 if there's any sglt2 expression in the skin and subcutaneous tissue if that puts people at increased risk um but so far nothing has panned out i'm sure we'll learn something in the next couple of years two things i wanted to ask you uh one after you start this medication, when do you recheck labs? Two, anything about changing their habit, urinary habits that you tell them? I think with respect to checking labs, you'd probably check it every couple of weeks for at least the first couple of months. 
um, just to make sure that all the numbers are okay. Some people may have an exaggerated osmotic diuresis, so you don't want them to uh, lose a lot of uh, volume. So you just want to make sure that all the numbers are okay. Uh, but I don't. And these are not like ACE or ABS where you really look for hyperkalemia or some other electrolyte abnormality in the first f- uh, couple of months. So I'm not too worried. But at the same time, I think it's just prudent to check in the first couple of months. Um, and then you would probably check like any other diabetic patient. I don't think there should be any um, uh, time scale as to when you should check labs. And um, what was your second question, Matt? Urinary habits. Uh, urinary habits, uh, I would just say I think they're going to pee a lot more, um, and I think that should be expected. Uh, but if they start having symptoms of urinary tract infection, I think they sh- that should come to attention pretty fast. The one thing I do tell them is to really work hard to, you have to ensure you empty your bladder completely. And if that's not occurring, then you you know that's going to set you up for a UTI. The other thing is uh, the percent change in kidney fu- in creatinine. I think is an important thing to recognize, and uh, that's it's really unknown exactly what that is. And I think I've seen um, a you know increase by 0.3 or 30 percent increase if they had a creatinine of one, for instance, when they when they when you start them. Joel, any thoughts on that? Yeah, so we've been we've been starting uh, these drugs on a lot of people at Cashlac, and um, we've had a couple of patients get real exaggerated volume deficiency when they started this. All these patients had been on uh, thiazide type diuretics, usually chlorothaladone, when they got started on this drug. And I think the two drugs together are pretty potent diuretics, and we're changing our protocol that we're holding the diuretic when we start start the SGLT2, and then when they return, we resume it at half dose as long as they're doing well. Is that just for the thiazide and thiazide-like? Because I, I believe some of our past guests we've talked, they they keep them on the loop diuretics, and they've, they haven't had issues, but the thiazides, I've, I've heard consistently to stop them. Are you stopping all diuretics initially? The experience where I've seen the patients get into trouble, that's always been thiazides. I have not seen patients, but I don't... And when you see these patients, they catch the, lack, are they like coming to the ER or is it like... No, they're coming in for return visits. They're feeling lousy. They're orthostatic. They're, they're sick. And they, have AK, and they have AKI, despite what they showed in the, in the studies with no AKI. These are patients that are doubling their serum creatinine from 1.2, 1.3 up to you know 2. Um, and to say, what about the, the loops? I don't tend to use a lot of loop diuretics until their GFRs get below the level that I'd be using in SGLT2. So I just haven't seen that. You see what I'm saying? You know, I think this so, would be now more for your patients, uh, like the DAPA HF crowd, where some of those yeah, patients right. were seeing cardiovet- like heart failure hospitalizations decrease. So you would guess, say, not a problem with loop. That's interesting. I love that. That's a good. That's a that's a good hint. Episode one sixty something with Doctor Colburn. And uh, he's an endocrinologist. And the, the a couple more tips from him, just to remind the audience, when you start these agents, Dr. Colburn, this is his expert opinion, he lowers the total daily dose of insulin by about 20 to 30% to allow room for these drugs. Insulin, um, that's the thing that lowers- Yeah, Matt, don't worry about it. It's okay. You don't have to know it. <laughs> <laughs> Three times a week, right? Three times a week. Okay. All right. Yep. Um, you know, I'm just maybe, joking, right? I hope, I hope the audience realizes that <laughs> it is. I think uh, they realize okay. that. Right. They, good. Good. The, and then I just wanted to point out too, we mentioned UTIs, definitely general infections, like consistently, there's a lot of signal there. I think for UTIs, 
it I, I haven't read I've, I've read some things that people say watch out for them but it hasn't panned out as much as like the fungal genital infections those seem to be the most consistent issue infection wise with these uh, UTIs not as not as much but if people start to get multiple UTIs on these I think you just common sense you just stop stop the agent so let's uh, Hannah what's what's up next here for I know we have a little bit of time left and and we still have a bunch of stuff that we wanted to talk through. Uh, I'd love to be able to talk a little bit about SGLT2 inhibitors for non-diabetic kidney disease. I think that's something a lot of people have questions about. Uh, I right hope now. you have a case with a really clever name. I I think it's clever. Uh, as <laughs> 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 uh, I am prone to think that I am clever. No. <laughs> we all think you're clever, Hannah. You can stop. You can stop showing off. We know you're smart. <laughs> Well, you know, I'm the macula densa, um, and but I'm not very smart with the TGF feedback. With uh, <laughs> well, this this next region really blows my whole theory. So uh, I'm just going to tune out. You know, to pretend this is not happening. <laughs> this so is that, why I'm rooting for so other that, mechanisms. Yeah. So that first region that we just talked about, that was the TG feedback versus the other mechanisms. I really want this the other mechanisms to win secretly. Yeah. Because then if these are agents used in all types of kidney disease, then we are just, that's gangbusters. So, but I just, something about the water balloons that I just love. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So I recently went to a Grand Rounds uh, that was actually all about SGLT2 inhibitors. It was an endocrinologist, a nephrologist, and a cardiologist that rotated. And at the end, the endocrinologist closed by saying, I think that these are going to be heart failure drugs that we now think about uh, as having some small effect on diabetes uh, in a couple of years. And that really has stuck with me, and it it's, has impressed me for this next region. So our case is Miss Claire D. Timmy, who is a 63-year-old woman with a history of hypertension, CKD3A, GFR48, and HFPEF. Her cardiologist mentioned that there was a new medication that might improve both her CKD and her heart failure, and so she was hoping to hear more about it from you. Can you tell us what's the evidence around SGLT2 inhibitors in non-diabetic kidney disease? Thanks, Hannah. I think... You know, we just spoke about mechanisms, and I'm going to rein in on Matt's parade again. But if you truly believe that there are other mechanisms other than TG feedback, then this makes a lot of sense that you would use it for conditions other than diabetes. And as Joel was saying at the start, these drugs are lousy, like glucosuric drugs. They don't reduce A1Cs by a lot. I'm I'm actually astonished to hear that somebody reduces insulin by 30% because I didn't think they had that much of an effect on glucose levels. But in addition to, you know, TG feedback, it also, we spoke about the inflammation effect. We spoke about um, how it's, it's an energy saver. Um, and so those effects really come to the forefront when we talk about use in other conditions. The other thing I'll point out is there was this really cool animal model study where, you know, they found that uh, SGLT2 inhibitors can actually preserve the cytoskeleton of the podocytes. And apparently, podocytes have SGLT2 inhibitors, and this is upregulated in um, pro proteinuria. So when you give SGLT2 inhibitors, this actually you know, stabilizes the structure of the podocytes and actually decreases uh, proteinuria, which I think is fascinating. And perhaps the reason why we should be using these drugs more in non-diabetic patients. So, you know, as you would expect, we have two large studies that are coming out soon, DAPA-CKD and MPA-Kidney. 
which are enrolling patients with both diabetes and non-diabetes. And considering how uh, the benefit has been so proven in diabetic patients, perhaps these studies will enroll more non-diabetics than diabetics. And also, we have the recent DAPA heart failure study where more than 55% of uh, the the population was non-diabetic. So it showed a huge effect in that study. And if we can extrapolate from that, we would see that it, it is probably very useful in patients with non-diabetic CKD. The only problem being we don't know if it's useful only in patients who have proteinuria or in patients who do not have proteinuria. So that is something that we need to study from here on. Okay, so the few words I want to bring up. First, probably, I heard that a lot. Um, <laughs> the other thing is, Harish, I just want to say, if, it does, I mean, and first, I want it to be positive. I, ho- I totally do. I would love to have TG feedback not be the only mechanism. But if they don't show a strong signal, then what are you going to say? Because you basically uh, told us that you know what's going to happen. They're going to be big benefit. This is going to be an evergle- evergreen uh, podcast for me, I think. <laughs> Yeah, Matt, if they if they don't show benefit, then you have to rethink uh, the benefits in this population, I think. We have the DAPA H we have the DAPA HF trial. The DAPA HF trial published last July. 55% of patients, or excuse me, 60% of patients, no diabetes. And in the sensitivity analysis, it didn't the drug was just as effective in diabetic or non-diabetic. That's the heart. Yeah, it's an important organ. I'm not sure you've heard of it. <laughs> Pumps blood to the kid. I know. I've heard of it. It's cute little thing. It goes boop, 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 boop. <laughs> no, I really do want it to. I want it to win. I mean, uh, this is going to be exciting. But I think it's just a little bit too soon to put this team into the big dance. That's just all I'm saying. It's too early. We it, 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 they need to recruit better. I wanted to bring us back to the mechanisms for a second, Harish and uh, Joel, Matt. If you guys have any thoughts on this, so in DAPA HF. The cardiovascular benefit was a composite they looked at. It was cardiovascular death and CHF, like rehospitalizations or hospitalizations. And most of the benefit was driven by the prevention of CHF hospitalizations or heart failure hospitalizations. But we're saying that earlier people said they don't think the benefit is is based on volume status. Do you think maybe for the heart it is based on just kind of improving the volume status, or do you think it's more of like an anti-inflammatory or fibrosis effect? Yeah, Matt, I'm not sure how to answer that. I think it's a bit of both. I think the volume does play an effect, but if it were the only thing, then diuretics would have that much of an effect, right? We, I think diuretics, in it, they are much more effective in reducing volume than perhaps SGLT2 inhibitors, though, you know, sometimes patients have an exaggerated response. Yeah, but famously... Right. Famously, they've never had a placebo-controlled trial of diuretics in heart failure, except for aldactone, and they work pretty well. Right. It's just we it, we've not done that trial. That's true. And the other thing is, I think you have to look at uh, DAPA's population. I think the EF cutoff was forty percent. So a lot of patients might not have had that severe heart failure that they had in increased mortality and other endpoints. And I think you know we're talking about a patient here who has heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. So I think there's a couple of trials who are which are enrolling patients with preserved ejection fraction, like they call emperor preserved, I think something else preserved. And in when those trials come out, if these drugs do show a benefit, then it's more on uh, the LV remodeling and things that happen within the heart and not just volume. I think volume is definitely a component, but I think there's probably other things happening as well. So if you were seeing this patient in clinic, what might you tell her for use of SGLT2 inhibitors for non-diabetic kidney injury? What would you do? 
for this particular patient, you know, she has an EGFR of 48 and heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. I would check if she has albuminuria. I think that plays an important part. If she has proteinuria, I think I would argue that there is definite benefit. Uh, but if she doesn't, then I would, you know, I, I don't know the true answer. I would just tell her the data that exists and uh, the recent benefits and perhaps she can choose to go on it. I'll tell you, I, for a patient who has CKD3A, uh, the likelihood of her getting a kidney outcome before we have the data on this drug is low. And I would caution her. I'd say, let's just wait. There's, nephrology is littered with people getting started on medications that don't pan out. And you know what happens is if they get started on the medication and the trial comes back negative, they stay on the drug and it doesn't do them any good. Uh, you know, CKD3A is a early, we've caught the patient very early. We have years to prepare for this patient for, to give them definitive therapy. We can wait for uh, EMPA kidney and the other trials to come out uh, defining whether this drug works in kidney disease. So our last section is SGLT2 inhibitors in kidney transplant patients. Uh, and our patient is Ms. Florizin. So she's a 52-year-old woman who's now six months status post-kidney transplant for ESRD secondary to hypertension. She's also heard about SGLT2 inhibitors and wants to know if you think that they could benefit her too. So what do we think? Well, I think first we have to point out that none of the trials have enrolled transplant patients. So we still don't have large-scale trials in these patients. We have a couple of really small trials and some observational studies. Uh, but, you know, when you talk to transplant physicians, they're worried about some of the things that SGLT2 inhibitors cause right off the bat. First, they cause osmotic diuresis. So you see a lot of volume depletion in these patients. And two, they cause a decrease in um, GFR. The acute decrease in GFR is sometimes you, it's hard to tell whether that's due to the drug, whether that's due to rejection, or whether that's due to, you know, some, some other infection. Uh, and sometimes they need a biopsy. And I don't know if that would be the best thing for them. Um, if the other uh, diagnoses are also under consideration. Um, and third, it also increases the risk of genital mycotic infections, which in itself, as you know, any infections in transplant patients might be much more severe. So I think when transplant physicians and nephrologists are thinking about prescribing these uh, drugs for kidney transplant patients, um, I think these are the issues that they're really thinking about, and they know that there's not a lot of evidence for this. Um, but they also know that if somebody has uh, cardiovascular disease and, um, and now has post-transplant diabetes, I think it would be uh, they would consider a, that sort of a patient uh, pretty good for somebody who can go on the drug. Uh, but we still don't have data to say that for sure. Do we have any idea of what kind of the mechanisms might be? I think uh, when we talk about SGLT2 inhibitors in transplant patients, we're mostly talking about uh, patients with perhaps post-transplant uh, diabetes mm -hmm. and perhaps some chronic allograft nephropathy. And I think the mechanisms would be pretty similar in transplant patients as well, where you see uh, the same TG feedback and you see reduction in inflammation and energy consumption. I think those would be the same mechanisms. I don't think there's a, and then extra mechanism, uh, but I think... Uh, uh, what remains to be proven is whether the cardiovascular benefit remains the same. Yeah. And I think, you know, we live in an era that we've gotten so good at transplant that the primary reason that people lose a graft is it's death with a functioning graft, right? Where these kidneys are not out, are outliving the patient. And so if we have a therapy now that can preserve their kidney function and preserve their heart and prevent them from having these other outcomes, that might be the best way, the best thing that we can do for patients. Now, absolutely, we don't have the data yet, but 
I think we're rapidly coming to the point where we need to do this trial. We need to figure out if these drugs work and if they're safe in transplant, because we need to we need to get these patients to be living longer. And I think a lot of uh, uh, physicians have been using it off-label in these patients. I'm sure we'll have a lot of data in the coming years. Um, you see, you know, I see physicians telling me all the time, I just put her on it, she's doing fine. And so perhaps I'll just keep her on it and see what happens, you know. So I'm sure we'll get a lot of those patients. And once we get that data, I think we can say for sure. Yeah, and I've been, and I, we, we've asked around on NEF Twitter, and I've asked our transplant surgeons, and generally people are pretty receptive to using these drugs in transplant, though all the concerns that Harish uh, brought up are really, they're, they're not minor concerns. They're, they, they, you need to be thoughtful about using these drugs here. So let's end it with some take-home points. Harish, can you, can you give us your, your main take-home points for this one, and then we can let Joel and Matt fill in any additional ones? Sure. Um, I think our listeners would have gotten a great idea that SGLT2 inhibitors are, are fantastic drugs. Um, they have significant benefit, but they also have a lower incidence rate of side effects, which you know people have to note, such as mycotic genital infections um, and very rarely euglycemic DKA or the phonius gangrene or the perineal infections that you pointed out, Matt. So I think taking this in a hand, I think we're going to ex- see the expansion of these drugs to a lot of other conditions, including transplant and non-diabetic CKD. So I would just tell our listeners, you know, watch out. I think uh, you're going to see a lot of literature on these drugs and you're going to hear about them constantly in the news. One of the things that we're seeing with these drugs is uh, the endocrinologist thinks it's a kidney drug. The kidney doctor thinks it's a heart drug. The heart doctor thinks it's a kidney drug and or, and nobody's prescribing them. And this is a time where you can say, these drugs have powerful effects. They protect the kidneys. They protect the heart. I want my patients to have good kidneys. I want my patients to have a healthy heart. I'm going to prescribe them. Don't just push this off to the next doctor, to the next specialist. Drugs are relatively safe. You know what to look for. Instruct your patients on what's going on and get them on the medication because they're the most powerful medication that we've seen in 20 years. Matt, any anything to add? As an enthusiast as of the renin angiotensin system, I have <laughs> to freely admit that I'm very impressed with these drugs. I've almost had to. <laughs> okay, that's it. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> no, you know, you know. And I look back at the old studies, and it's like I'm always giving talks on the renin angiotensin system, and I'm obviously I'm I'm jealous. I'm jealous of the <laughs> SGLT2 inhibitors. Uh, but I'm not jealous of the fact that they both work for, on the exact same, you know, glomerulus. And they're trying to save <laughs> glomerulus from death. It's what brings us all together in the end, isn't it? It is. <laughs> all right. And if you guys, you guys ever come over Wait. to Durham, I will have a large water balloon fight in my backyard. <laughs> Promise. Yeah, they have like a basketball version of Neff Madness there, don't they? Yes, definitely. <laughs> Actually, they canceled it this year just for Neff Madness. I'm That's sorry, I'm one. kidding. Are we going to do picks to win the region? Do you- we know those picks are going to be? I can tell you. We could do them. Uh, we could do them quickly. Let's. Uh, I'm a little intimidated to go first, but I think other mechanisms uh, are going to win the mechanisms, mm-hmm. and then I think non-diabetic kidney disease, and then I have non-diabetic kidney disease taking the whole bracket. I'm going to go with. Uh, uh, TG feedback to win the first one and SGLT2 in non-diabetic kidney disease to win the bottom one and then SGLT2 in non-diabetic kidney disease to win the region. I agree with uh, Hannah. I think uh, other mechanisms, non-diabetic CKD and non-diabetic CKD to win the bracket, the region and Nef Madness. 
Oh, oh. <laughs> I'm telling you guys. Have to be optimistic. You need some coffee. Matt, what do you got? Oh, this is easy. TG feedback just stomps all over non-TG mechanisms. And the second one, who really cares? But it is a matchup that is close, and I'm going to have to go with the only one that has an active or large trial, and that's the non, non-diabetes um, as shield two inhibitors. And then it's just a cakewalk. For uh, Duke, I mean TG feedback, uh, and Zion dunks all over them. <laughs> As the only other Matt on this call, I'm just going to pick other mechanisms going all the way through this bracket. Uh, non-diabetic kidney disease will probably have a first round win and then uh, lose to other mechanisms. And then the final Neff Madness episode that will be coming out is going to be on on transplant for the kidney transplant for the internist, something like that is what we'll be naming it. And it'll feature, it'll be a freely filtered podcast that will be on our channel. So look out for that in a week or two from when this one airs. Thanks for having us. And thank you so much for supporting Neff Madness. We absolutely love the curbsiders. Yeah, we really do. It's amazing. Harish, nice job. Thanks, Matt. And thanks, Matt and Hannah. That was fantastic. That was fun. Yeah, yeah that, was really, that was really cool. Check your All right, email. Thank you, guys. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yum. (laughs) Get show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our show notes in your inbox. We're committed to providing you with high value, practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producers for this episode, Hannah R. Abrams, and our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Manchu on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Hannah Rebecca Abrams. And I wanted to thank Stuart for producing our music and to Claire Morgan at Notterly for editing our audio. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto without Stuart and Paul this week. So good night, guys, where, <laughs> wherever you are. Telling our Maurice, listeners. Can I just stop you? I'm sorry to just let's just wait till Joel gets back because when he walks back, it's gonna it's gonna make sound. I won't be able to edit that out over. So let's sure. let's wait till he gets back. Okay. All right. Sorry about that, grandfather clock. <laughs> <laughs> Claire, please put that comment at the end of the show. <laughs> <laughs>